I keep looking, you know, I keep looking to, like, uh, people are writing about this all the time, so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm reading their stuff, trying to find who's really got a, a picture of, of, a, of a workable future. And all I can find is dystopian pictures. <laughs> this is Van Collar. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This is Van Culler, I'm joined by a world-renowned psychologist who has taught and conducted extensive paradigm-shifting research on the psychology of addiction at my alma mater, Simon Fraser University. In 2007, he received the Nora and Ted Sterling Prize in support of controversy from SFU, which may be the coolest award title that I've ever heard of. (laughs) If you haven't heard of him, but you're familiar with the work of Johan Ari and Gaber Maté, you've probably heard of his Rat Park experiments. He is the legendary Dr. Bruce Alexander. Dr. Alexander, how are you? Well, I just learned that I'm legendary. You are. And, and beyond that, I'm feeling very good. Thank you for that kind introduction, Mo. Of course. It's, it's, uh, it is an honor and it's a pleasure to have you here. So thanks so much for, for taking the time out of your schedule to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Now, I've heard of the Rat Park experiments for about five years now. Uh, but it's only recently that I heard Yoan Hari cite you by name on the Joe Rogan experience, which is a pretty big deal because because each of his episodes gets millions of listens. I'm curious what's what that's like, knowing that a study that you did 40 years ago is still being talked about by psychologists, researchers, and, and people who just have a casual interest in things like psychology or the psychology of addiction. Well, it's very exciting, but it goes, <laughs> it goes with a certain amount of of heartbreak because we did this research 40 years ago and of course it wasn't just me I had wonderful colleagues who did it with me mm-hmm. um, but the, the heartbreak is that that when we did it 40 years ago we thought aha this is going to change the world of addiction right now mm-hmm. and instead it was published and it was published in very good academic journals and it sank like a stone it disappeared yeah and uh, then it re- started reappearing maybe 20 years ago, um, and various people were, you know, were featuring the Rat Park experiment in their in their textbooks or in their discussions of addiction and so forth. And then it, it reemerged with a bang when Johan Hari uh, did his did his book, of course, and mm-hmm. and and Gaber Maté, as you mentioned, also featured it, and other people have as well. So it, it's it's very exciting, and of course, it leaves me with the question: Why did it hibernate? Why did it go to sleep and then come back to uh, come back to life again? And, Do you have and, any thoughts on that? Why? Yeah. Why it did sink at, at the start, and then now suddenly is making this reemergence? Yes. Yeah, I I think it's because times have changed so dramatically, mm-hmm. and you know, here we are in in Gastown, Vancouver, British Columbia. If it were 50 years ago or 40 years ago, we wouldn't be doing this show. We wouldn't be having this conversation. That's true. And there would be guys out on the street. There would be undercover cops um, knocking people down on the street, uh, hurting them, arresting them, carting them off to Ocala or to the BC Pen, which were at that point full of of drug users. Mm-hmm. Um and there would be charges of police brutality, but they would always be exonerated. And sometimes would people in the course of being searched by the police would die. They would be literally searched to death. Right. Because the the idea was that if you swallowed the evidence in those days, the evidence being a little plastic bag of pills, mm-hmm. well, it would have to be punched out of you. And, and so, so searches often involved punching people in the stomach until they... Really? That was the purpose to... To get the drugs out of it there. It was to get to the get evidence. them to vomit the the drugs. Wow. But more than that, it was it was the times. It was a time in which drug addiction was understood entirely differently. Yeah. Than it is now. The the idea that a, a drug addict was punched unconscious on the street and might even die, as sometimes died, mm-hmm. 
that idea wasn't so so horrible to people then because it was a different time. And, you know, go back to why does Rat Park emerge as a story now when it wasn't a story then? Mm-hmm. Well, the times have changed and, and people are asking questions now that they weren't asking then because then they were so sure. They, were, they, know, they knew the cause of addiction. The cause of addiction was you take this stuff, this heroin, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, 40, 50 years ago, heroin was the drug. We were having a heroin panic then. Right. Much as we're having a fentanyl panic now. In between, we had other panics sure. for, you know, methamphetamine and crack cocaine and so forth. Mm-hmm. But then it was heroin, and um, everyone knew the fact, which isn't a fact, but everyone knew the supp- supposed fact that if you take this drug a few times, you're you're hooked on it, and, and you... You will always be hooked on it, and the, the best you can hope for is, uh, you know, a life of painful abstinence. Well, all that's changed, right? So, so let's get into that, and let's let's think about before we get into the Rat Park experiment. Let's let's talk about how drug addiction was viewed in the culture and, and by society at the time. Can you explain? Both the solitary rat experiment, uh, <laughs> which which preceded yours, and yours was in response to that. And can you also explain this idea of the devil drug theory? Yeah. Well, I, I have to explain one more thing in, sure. order, in order to do that. If you go back, let's say, more than 40 or 50 years ago, mm-hmm. you find other versions of the story you find for example you go back to 1939 which happens to be the year i was born okay um you, you, you could have fooled me sir <laughs> well thank <laughs> thank you but uh, yeah so that's 80 years ago yeah uh if you go back then um there was a huge drug panic but it wasn't heroin but it was do you know what it was the drug panic of 1939 you, you'll you'll know when I tell you. No, no. It it was there were two movies about a drug that if you took it, it would catch you with chemical hooks and you would become a murderer or insane. <laughs> and the two movies were called Assassin of Youth and Reefer Madness. Okay, so marijuana. The drug was marijuana. Yeah. So that story that there's a drug that has hooks on it. Yeah. That drags people along, you know, just without any any alternative, without any any escape from that. Mm-hmm. That's an old story. Sure. It goes back to the demon possession stories. So now we get to let's say 40, 50 years ago in Vancouver when we're doing the rat park 40 years ago, we're doing the rat park experiments. Mm-hmm. And everyone believes that they know the whole story of heroin. It just got these hooks on it, and and right. that's it. So if if some some wise ass up at SFU decides to do an experiment and shows well that isn't it, no one cares. They're not listening because they're they're not it, open to that possibility. It's so ingrained in the the school of thought and the culture, right? That that's idea. right. That's yeah. right. And now the culture is way more open on that. Now a lot of people still believe that hook story. Mm-hmm. And you can read it every day if you want to, but there are lots of other stories. And, sure. and, and, and so there's a much wider range of thinking as possible now than was 40 years ago. So now we can talk about Rat Park in a way that we couldn't 40 years ago. The solitary rat experiment, mm-hmm. which you asked me, was approximately 40 to 50 years ago. Uh, laboratory researchers would take white rats and they'd put them in a little box, which we called a Skinner box, and there's a little, little lever on the wall. And if the rat presses the little lever, they get a shot of heroin. And, and the reason they can get the shot is they are a, they're tethered with a tube that is implanted right in their jugular vein um, so, that, so that as soon as they press the bar, the little, a little dose of heroin comes through the tube right into their brain, basically, through their jugular vein. Okay. And if you do that to these rats, these, these rats isolated in a Skinner box, well, lots of them will take heroin. They take lots of heroin. Some of them will even take it to the point where they they forget to eat and they starve hmm. themselves to death. So it's a very spectacular experiment. And it seems to, to support this idea of the drug with hooks or the devil drug. Right. The drug which, which once you take it, you can't resist it. And it isn't just people who can't resist it. It's all God's creatures, even the white rat. <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, 
that was this was headline news in Vancouver in 1970. Really? Yeah. See, because I mean, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a scientist, but the fact that they've tethered this uh, this tube to the rat itself yeah. immediately sticks out as like, well, of, of course it's going to continue to take heroin because it's literally tethered to the source, sure. <laughs> right? <laughs> That's obvious now, but it wasn't obvious uh, when we did the rat party experiments. Sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that that you know, of course you think that that's that's just that's a very sensible way to think, but people weren't thinking very sensibly hmm. back then. What has happened in the meantime is that we've you know we've we've had this incredible idea that we can we can control drug addiction by having wars on drugs and if you know we just somehow batter people badly enough they they won't take the drugs what well, didn't work right so we you know we 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 have to abandon that which means we have to think much more broadly and that's what's happening now like the the breadth of thought which is going on in the field of addiction now is wonderful Mm-hmm. The breadth of thought that was going on when we did at the time we did the Rat Park experiments was negligible. <laughs> there, sure, there yeah. really wasn't very much. There was some, and and there are some heroes in this city. I, mean, I won't go on and on too much, but you know, doctors who knew that that what they were being told about this demon drug just wasn't true. There 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 were people who who resisted it, but there weren't a lot. So and, this solitary rat experiment, like this, became. Everyone believed this, basically. Yeah, and they and they all saw. Okay, this is how drugs work, and this is how addiction works. It was headline news, literally. And so, so I heard. Uh, I, I believe it was a, you were telling someone else a story where one of your students brought this up to you, right? Is was that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And how do they frame this? Like, were were they debating you in class, or how did how did this come about? Well. So here I am in Vancouver. I've just arrived in 1970 mm-hmm. uh, to work at SFU, your yeah. alma mater. Which is a new university at that time. Brand new university, yeah. just opened in 1965. Mm-hmm. And um, I, have to, uh, I have to teach the course in social issues. And this is, this is a feature of university democracy, that if there's a course that, in the department that absolutely nobody wants to teach, well, the youngest, newest members <laughs> of the department has to teach it. We call, sure. this, we call this democracy. Yeah. So I had to teach the course in social issues. So what social issues? So I learned that the social issue in those days in Vancouver, one of the big ones, was heroin addiction. Mm. So I got myself a job uh, doing therapy with, with heroin addicts. And Interesting. in, you know, right, basically right here, um, actually it was not quite exactly here, but in this area. Mm-hmm. And uh, so these these junkies, as they call themselves, uh, would tell me these stories of why they were using heroin and why they were living this, this life. And I found it fascinating. Mm-hmm. And I think they could talk to me because I was so young. I mean, I wasn't really much older than they were. Sure. And I was actually listening um, because I, you know, didn't necessarily have to dream, uh, believe the demon drug story, although I'd heard it all my life up to that point. But they were telling me something different. Mm-hmm. They were telling me about what works, why heroin addiction works. Hmm. Like it works if if you, let's say you're, you dropped out of school at grade nine and girls don't like you and your parents don't like you, and you've got really no prospect of doing anything in life, the people who do like you are the, uh, the junkies, you know, mm. and, they, and, and they have a society, and, and, and you're welcome in the society if you've got a little money for, for dope. Yeah. You don't have to have a lot, you know, but, but, but then you can, you can hang around and you can do petty crime and you can do petty prostitution if you're a girl. Hmm. And, and, and it's, it's a life. It's, it's something other than no life. And it, but this is hard for many people to imagine. Can you imagine what it's like to have absolutely nothing to do or nothing that interests you or nothing that matters in your life? Well, if you if you in that position... Then to be a junkie is is not nothing. It's it's maybe not what your parents and grandparents wanted for you, mm-hmm. and it's maybe not what you wanted for yourself. But it's not nothing. It's the right. abyss, the void of having nothing whatsoever. This is what these young men and women who I was seeing as a counselor were were telling me about. So I'd go and tell my students. Yeah. Look at it. these guys are telling me a story. It has nothing to do with drugs with hooks on them. Sure. It's a, it's a whole different story. 
And at that point, one of my students in the back row uh, in one of these classes up at SFU, one of the students raised his hand and said, what's the matter? Haven't you heard about the rats? Meaning these rats in the solitary cages. Yeah, it was headline news, as you were saying. The headline news. <laughs> Haven't you heard that these drugs have such hooks in them that even even laboratory rats can't resist them? Yeah. Um, and I, of course I had. I'd heard that. It's just that the junkies were telling me something different. Mm-hmm. So then a group of us uh, got together and decided, well, okay, let's let's test this out. Let's just see if it isn't the case that those rats, as you said earlier, I mean, these rats are in a box. They've, they've, they're stuck in the neck with a, a catheter that's connected to a tube, and they're totally isolated. Mm-hmm. Let's just see if that isn't why they're taking the drug, rather than that all God's, God's children find this drug irresistible. And so sure. we built Rat Park. Yeah. Before we get into Rat Park, because I, I do want to spend a little time on on Rat Park, when we do talk about the devil drug theory, um, there seems to have also had some. There seems to have been some historical roots in racist biases as well, right? Uh, yeah. What can you can you explain that, um, especially in, in the context of Canada and and how that relates? I'll limit it to Canada because I know Canada best in this regard. Sure. Um, if we go back to the beginning of the 20th century, we had a tremendous problem in, in Canada with Chinese immigration that was absolutely necessary economically to build the railways and to open the mines because the, the Chinese workers were willing to take on the really, really hard work. Sure. But this produced a tremendous amount of resentment for the non-Chinese population because they were saying you know, well, these guys will work for cheaper than us and, mm-hmm. and they work harder than us and what do we do? You know, it was, this is a familiar kind of a situation yeah. <laughs> now, but this is what it was in Canada then. Hmm. And so there was a tremendous hostility between white people and Chinese people right in this city. It's centered in Vancouver. And there were anti-Asiatic riots in 1907, which were bloody and, and um, horrible. And and it was because of this kind of economic comp- it was because of this kind of economic competition that that this kind of uh, this kind of resentment built up. And and politicians had to find some way. Of course, they were white politicians. They wanted to find some way to support the white population against the Chinese. But but how could they? Because mm-hmm. the Chinese worked harder, and they were. Uh, uh, thrifty and and they took care of their families there there was nothing wrong with the chinese people of course they were they were excellent people but they smoked opium and 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 uh opium was was uh there were opium dens over here on pender street and Kiefer street right and people would smoke opium and so so the legend built up that opium was a drug that has these hooks on it and Ah. and that the chinese Wicked Chinese men would invite white girls to the opium dens and give them opium to smoke, and then the hooks would play their role. Oh. And so there was a there was a very very ugly racism. This is a part of our history that we like to forget, and I like to forget it too. But sure. yeah, <laughs> but it's relevant in 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 this case. There was there was very ugly anti Chinese racism at that point and part of the justification for it was that they used this demon drug this devil drug hmm. um there were other bases for it too of course you know it wasn't just the devil drug but the devil drug was one of the justifications that people could get away with because who knows who knew whether opium was really a devil drug or not right. and nobody <laughs> nobody ever smoked it except the chinese so so you know you could you could tell people anything you wanted to about opium just like now you can tell any people you want any people anything you want to about fentanyl yeah, exactly. Or in 1950 you, or 1970, you could tell them anything you wanted to about heroin, and 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 they would believe it. Hmm. Um, and I'm not saying that everything we say about fentanyl or everything we say about heroin is untrue. I'm just saying that that these stories become larger than life. Yeah. They make it difficult to think clearly about our problems because because we make the we simplify the problems with with oversimplifications of of what these particular drugs are capable of right so there's this theory in the culture of of, of 
the devil drug theory. It's a very simplified theory. You've had the single rat experiment. You have this student that's debating you in your class about having yeah. seen the news. Uh, and then you decide to construct this experiment, the Rat Park experiment. Can you explain the experiment and, and how this worked, especially in contrast to the single rat experiment? Yeah. Well, we, we have a bunch of single rats and we put them in cages, mm -hmm. which are just like the Skinner boxes, except we don't, we don't tether them with the, uh, with the tube. Sure. Um, but we, in the cages, they're given a choice between drinking water and drinking water with morphine in it. Mm -hmm. And then we have Rat Park. And, and Rat Park is, is designed to be a sort of a rat paradise. Really, it's, it was designed after my garage floor. Because <laughs> <laughs> your garage floor was a rat paradise? Oh, yes. <laughs> rats, I knew that rats were very happy in places like my garage floor. So okay. we essentially built one in the, in the laboratory. Okay. Except it, it wasn't dingy and dark like a, a garage floor. We had nice trees painted on the wall. And, okay. Nice. And it was beautiful. And they had toys to play with and all this. Mm -hmm. and, and lots of male and female rats. And of course, you know, I, little corners for for cocktail parties and meditation and and raising children and all the the things that rats do I'm, sure I, i'm joking you understand i know i <laughs> <laughs> little rat yoga studio the, that, and, yeah. Yeah, yeah the equivalent of, of all that sure right? and then we gave the rats the same choice yeah. between drinking water and drinking morphine mm -hmm. And we do this under a variety of conditions it's it's difficult to do it first because morphine tastes terrible um, morphine is extremely bitter. Like if you think of how tonic water tastes, it's got a bitterness to it. Okay. But imagine that bitterness a hundred times more bitter. Sure. Well, you wouldn't want to drink it. <laughs> no. right? And the rats don't want to drink it either. Yeah. So we have to, we, we use various measures to make it drinkable. Um, and then we compare the, the amount of input, uh, the amount of drug input mm -hmm. between the rats and the, uh, the rats in the single cages and the rats in Rat Park, and it's and the differences are very large and consistent. Yeah, right. The the rats in the single cages drink quite often ten times, fifteen times as much of it hmm. as the rats in Rat Park, and so we say, look, the drug doesn't have hooks on it. It's it's very much environment dependent. You can put rats in an environment in which mm -hmm. they will take um, lots of 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 opioid drugs and interestingly enough those environments in which they will take opioid drugs are very much like solitary confinement in which people will take any any drug they can to relieve the the agony of being in solitary confinement yeah and rats are very social animals as people are and if you put rats in a relatively social condition which is designed as well as we can to make an ideal environment for rats to live in they don't take nearly as much sure. it's not that they take none you know they they can taste it and they can drink it, but they don't drink it excessively, um, and they don't drink it in a way that, that that has any resemblance to the quantities that they would that an addicted person would take. Yeah, so it sounds like in lieu of um, stimulation, especially social stimulation and I guess social bonds. Um, you know, the rats in the the cages they they had nothing else to do. They were just that's why they would drink the the morphine water, right? I think so. Yeah, yeah. Is, I mean, I think I think it's more than that. Th that they had nothing to do. It's it's that rats are intensely social. Right. A single rat is is a rat which is being tormented, just like a single human being is a person that's being tormented. If you want to torture somebody, we now know that torture always involves isolation. Right. And the, that's and that's the idea of uh, being alone versus being lonely. That's right. Right? So right. It, the feeling of loneliness creates these situations where they're more inclined to have the the heroin water. That's how it seems. Okay. Now, we can, we didn't get to ask any follow-up questions with the sure, rats. Sure, so. sure. No, and, and I'm coming at it from, you know, from a very you know basic perspective and how I see the, the test. Is that, were those sort of the implications that, yeah. that you drew from it? Well, the main implication we drew was the negative one. Look, mm -hmm. at, this is not a drug that if you give it to a creature, 
in a, living in a relatively normal habitat that they will find irresistible. They mm-hmm. don't find it irresistible, even if you pre, you know, give them, force them to take it for a while so that they're, you know, they're, they're going to have withdrawal symptoms. And then you give them the choice of taking the drug or not taking the drug. They still don't take the drug. Hmm. It's not. So that, you, you put drug dependent rats into the rat park, yeah. you're saying. Yeah. And they, then they stop taking they the drug. They stop taking it. Interesting. Yeah. Or we would take rats which weren't drug dependent and we would make the, the morphine sweet enough so that they would drink it. Like we'd, we'd seduce them to drink it by putting sugar in it. Okay. And sure, they drink it. They drink some, but not very much compared to the ones in, in solitary confinement who are just wolfing it down. <laughs> right. Yeah. So again, you know, see, we learn something from the animals in Rat Park, which is that they can just drink a little. It's perfectly possible to take a little. Mm-hmm. Well, big surprise. We we also know, if we look carefully at the real data, that most humans who use opioid drugs just use a little, and they don't they don't overdo it. Some some of course do become addicted. Sure, we, you know that happens, and that's why that's why we're having this discussion. Yeah, but the greater number of people use it like rats in rat park which is they just take a little if they take any um and they don't get hooked by it now i I, again i don't know much about rat neurology or their brain chemistry or anything like that but it sounds like social animals including humans maybe have a compulsion towards dopamine or you know having their endorphins firing off is that what they're they're seeking at the end of the day because you can get that from, you know, positive social settings or you can get that from yeah. um, different substances. I, I hesitate to talk about brain chemistry because I'm not a neuroscientist. Sure, fair enough. But I, I've talked to a lot of people who've used a lot of dope. Yeah. And I can tell you what they're seeking, which is, you know, uh, a little peace and quiet, a little rest, a little, hmm. a little sense of, of relief of pain. Yeah. That's that's what people are seeking. Yeah, and we, you know, I'm not saying that there aren't dopamine isn't involved and endorphins aren't involved. I'm saying that we don't need to to try to analyze it in terms of brain chemistry because we can we can learn enough just by by asking people. Like we have a lot of recreational opium opioid users. Mm-hmm. We can ask them why they use it. And they tell us, like like those guys told me that I mentioned a few minutes ago. Mm-hmm. They told me, well, you know, I've become part of the, the heroin subculture. And not only do I does it give me some relief from my pain and my anxiety, but also I'm a member of a bunch of group and we're doing a bunch of people and we're doing this this really highly prohibited, scary stuff. Well we're you know, all of a sudden we're not nobody. We're we're kind of we're kind of big deals because yeah. we're, we're doing this really scary stuff. So there's all kinds of reasons why why people would use drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have the question we have to ask is why do people sometimes get get so terribly addicted? And I and I think we can answer that too. But Rat Park doesn't really tell us the answer. Yeah, I, and I guess that's my next question. I mean, uh, even though rats are social animals as you, as you said you know they aren't humans so how much can we take from your study and apply it when we're looking at addiction amongst human beings well it, i have two answers to that sure the first is you have to remember that this study was done in an era where when it was headline news that rats in in single cages would take lots and lots of heroin. Right, yeah. And that that seemed to prove that heroin was irresistible. Yeah. Well, I think we can take from the Rat Park studies that that was all wrong. Mm-hmm. It's just false. Mm-hmm. Now, how much does the Rat Park study tell us about why people really do become addicted to heroin or alcohol or Facebook <laughs> or sex? Yeah. Well, not very much. Sure. You know, yeah. I mean, you could say, in fact, I get email about this all the time, and I've got one recently which says, look, I'm a, I'm a clinician, so all I'm going to do is design a, a rat park where I can put my people, and, they, and they, will, uh, they won't want their drugs anymore. Yeah. And so I write back and say, thank you very much, but people aren't that simple. Yeah. You know, with rats, you just put them together, and they're, they're really happy. There's, there's really only three or four things 
that that rats do you know they 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 do have little parties together where they you know they kind of play and sure they, and they do sex yeah and they, they they do raise their babies and they do fight for dominance that's really kind of the story of of rat social life right there yeah um much more simple than than ours <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, and, and I would imagine that you know when you're saying these clinicians are asking you, you know, how do I make a rat park, but for their their uh, patients, um, everyone's rat park is going to look a lot different, right? Well, I th- that's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you think about it, what what is it we do as parents, or what if we do as 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 culture as a culture, is we try to give our children opportunities so that they. You know, they get together with the other children and they form groups that are meaningful mm-hmm. for that for their particular time in history. Right. So now, I mean, parents, like I'm a parent and I'm a grandparent, and it's pretty scary because I want I want my kids and my grandchildren to find a place in this in this terrifying world that's 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 going on all around us. Sure. It's a scary world. Yeah. And it isn't just that if they find any place they'll be safe from addiction. They've got to find a place that makes sense where they you know where they really feel they belong and they feel a sense of identity or um, belonging or peace. Mm-hmm. Um, and and. You know, I don't know the the formula for that. Yeah. I, do, I just know as a parent and as a grandparent, I try to help my children do that. And as a psychotherapist, I try to help people that I work with to try to put together a life which makes sense to them. But it's way, way, way more complicated than than just throwing them into Rat Park. And, sure. And <laughs> <laughs> what, one other thing that I, I am curious about, I mean, when we're talking about the devil drug theory and we're talking about the Rat Park experiment... Um, and I don't know if maybe this is a remnant of, of the old way of thinking, but I mean, chemical hooks do exist, right? Like I'm, I'm just thinking of this idea that some things, whether it's sugar or cigarettes or caffeine, have more of an addictive quality than other things. And, and I understand that certainly you can become addicted to anything, but some things are more quote unquote addictive than others. Is that Correct or or no or, well, sure. Some things are more addictive than others. Like like we keep having heroin drug panics, opioid drug panics, mm-hmm. and we don't have panics over uh, aspirin. Sure. Even yeah. th- even though some people do get adis- addicted to aspirin, absolutely. So yeah, some things are more addictive than others. But why is that? We can say, well, they're you know they're addictive. They have some kind of chemical hook. Yeah. But it seems to me that's that's just that's answering with a metaphor, rather than than really answering. I okay. why why are opioids particularly? Why do they lend themselves to addiction? Well, because it's a you know we're in a time in history when an awful lot of people are feeling um, the pain of dislocation. You know, the pain of being. Fragmented and separated and lonely and and mm-hmm. all of this and 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 opioid drugs do relieve that really well. Sure. So does alcohol, and and of course alcohol is a is a drug which lots and lots of people get addicted to. Um, but so, so does so food? does so does Facebook. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And lots and lots of people get addicted to Facebook. Now I don't think there's any chemical hooks associated with Facebook. <laughs> No, maybe not. I mean, but I certainly think it's designed in a purposeful way to to have you stimulated, right? The way the notifications come off, the way you scroll through it, like it is there. It's it's not just random. It's designed that way to keep you hooked. Exactly. And I and you know, obviously, we can talk about drugs and alcohol, but Facebook, or I'm even thinking of compulsive eating for some people, right? Um, I. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like, this is not my field. I'm just curious if, if some things can be more addictive than other because of their physiological qualities or what they're doing to your brain or I don't know. Well, clearly some things can be more addictive, but I'm I'm resisting when you get around to their physiological qualities. Sure. I, don't, I don't think Facebook has any physiological qualities. I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a series of images. And of course, they're designed to be seductive and, and addictive. And psychologists, I am ashamed to say, do some of that work of, of designing yeah, things to, yeah. be, to be specifically addictive. Um, but but are, are, they do, are there chemical hooks that can be identified in the brain? Or are we just saying that really it's the, the human mystery mm-hmm. 
is that is that there we have these needs which were very hard to describe, very hard to say exactly what it is we need to feel fulfilled and and to have a sense of well-being. Yeah, and it's very hard to say what how we can be seduced. I I, I just resist the physiological language because it makes it seem way simple, and it isn't way simple. Right, and I'm certainly not suggesting that. I'm I'm just curious because you do hear about things, uh, I mean, putting Facebook aside or technology aside, do you, you hear about things being addictive, you know, whether that is sugar or caffeine? So well, think, think about sugar. Yeah. I mean, we, we happen to be at a period right now in history where a lot of, there's a lot of sugar scare going on, and a lot of people are, are not letting their kids have nearly as much sugar as they used to in the past. But I, yeah. when I was a kid, we had so much sugar, you cannot believe how much <laughs> sugar we had. Oh, it was, it was just disgusting. Yeah. But we now know you can give children just moderate amounts of sugar. They get along fine. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's no hook in the sugar. Sure, yeah. It's, it's just, you know, there was a time when Kool-Aid and, and all these childhood products of, of disgusting amounts of, of sugar were, were advertised freely and nobody cared and it seemed like just the, the best thing to eat, whatever it is, sugar pops for breakfast. And, and right. All, you know, well, that's gone. I think it's much more cultural than it is chemical. That's yeah. my point. So, so let's get into this idea of it being cultural because you've, you have this idea that our culture and our society – is currently in a crisis of identity. Yep. You've sort of touched on this, uh, but you haven't used those specific words just yet in this interview. So I'm, I'm curious, can you explain what you mean when you say a crisis of identity? Yeah. Uh, I have to preface that by saying it isn't just me who's saying this. Sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there are lots of people in the field of addiction, but there are many more people outside of the field of addiction, particularly social scientists and religious people mm-hmm. um, and social critics and historians who are saying we live in a unique era of history. In this unique era, um, th- the world really is being organized into a, a huge economic machine, uh, which we can just see right outside if we look in the port of Vancouver. We see this sure. economic machine. It's all it's all around us. Yeah. We are part of this economic machine. And this economic machine works because it it organizes people in along very strict economic lines. And if it doesn't need them, it just kicks them right out of the machine and they, they become superfluous people and they you know they can't even afford a house in Vancouver or a or a room in Vancouver because they're superfluous to the economic machine. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of there's a lot of people who are superfluous, and there are a lot of people who belong in the economic machine, but but they're you know it keeps them working 24 hours a day. They're they're just always working for survival in order to have enough money to get their kids through school and and, and all this. These are it's a unique period in history. We don't have a precedent for this. We don't have a. We never had a world population this big. We've never had an economic machine that was global before, and we've sure, never had yeah. communication links of the sort that we now have. We we haven't been there before. Would you also and, add? Uh, but I just uh, oh, want to. I just want to finish this. Yeah. The the effect of that is visible all over the place in terms of psychological damage. So we see, mm. for example, levels of depression that we have never seen before. Right. Goes up and up and up and up. Levels of anxiety go up and up and up. Suicide. Um, it isn't just addiction, but addiction also goes up and up and up. Mm-hmm. Why is that? I think it's because because we we have a an era in which people have got to cope with absolutely unprecedented amounts of dislocation, to use that single word, or or identity loss. Um, that they've never had to cope with before. And I think addiction is one of the ways they cope with it. Sure. I, I was just going to say, w- when you were talking about all these things and how we're in, how we're in unprecedented times, uh, and then you pointing to the point, Port of Vancouver as well, I was thinking of, we're also disconnected from everything in our lives to a certain degree, at least more disconnected than most most other generations in the sense that you don't really know where your food is coming from. Yeah. You might be living in this big apartment building and you don't know the people who are living around you. Um, you know, there, there are these ways that we live in modern life that just are so foreign to 
how life was lived a hundred years ago. And a lot of that I feel like has to do with just being disconnected from whether it's our food or our communities, right? Exactly right. Yeah. And lots of people know that. It isn't just you and me. Sure, we're, not, yeah. we're not telling each other secrets. If I here. know it, a ton of people know it, I feel like. <laughs> well, that's because you, you told them. <laughs> but, but no, I'm, seriously, it's, it's, yeah, this is common knowledge. But what's not so common knowledge is the connection between that and addiction. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so, so we've got all these addiction tragedies going on around us. Um, and they're real, real, real tragedies. They really matter. And, but we've got to find an explanation. And, and the obvious explanation is right out there in front of us. It's just people are so disconnected. And some, of course, more and some, some less. Mm-hmm. But, but the general level of, of disconnection and fragmentation is, is rising, rising, rising. And, of course, there's more addiction because people who are in that position seek some kind of a life. And addiction gives them some kind of a life. So you've got no life. Okay, you can become a junkie. Or... You can become a, a um, <laughs> internet junkie. Sure, yeah. Or you could become a food junkie. Yeah. Or or whatever. So it's the, the discovery here. I think the important thing is the connection between that state of modern modernity mm-hmm. and addiction. Right. Is this also why, like, when, when we when we look at things like even things that might be positive, like how CrossFit clubs or yoga studios can take on like a cult-like <laughs> feel. And then even things that are negative, but perhaps aren't in the realm of addiction, but things like extreme ideologies. Uh, all of these things have seemed to gain a lot of traction in the last 10, 15 years. I mean, is this also attributable to this idea of a crisis of identity that people are looking for meaning or social meaning in different types of communities? Absolutely. I, I think it definitely is. And so I'm doing a lot of exploratory reading in the area of history. I'm not a historian. Mm-hmm. But I'm finding that the great historians are, are talking about things like, um, let's say, totalitarianism in the 20th century mm-hmm. or um, fanaticism in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. And, and they're, say, they're giving the same kind of explanation to it that Rat Park suggests we might give to addiction. Mm-hmm. They're, they're the same kind of explanation in the, in the sense that people are, as you say, loss of identity, uh, loss of belonging, loss of attachment, all these vague psychological words. Yeah, these, these are the cause of a lot of our trouble. And what I think is that we, even though we're in the midst of an opioid panic right now and we're, we're all running around screaming about, about how terrible it is that, of all these overdose deaths, Overdose mm-hmm. deaths are occurring. Mm-hmm. I think we are nonetheless underestimating the problem of addiction, because I think the problem of addiction goes way beyond the terrible loss due to opioid overdose deaths. Mm-hmm. It goes into the fanaticism and the extreme kinds of cults and and all these all these ways in which people get addicted to lifestyles which are which are harmful because they can't come up with a. a nice, inhabitable, normal lifestyle like they wanted to. Right. And that's the thing that really fascinates me about, uh, you know, when I read Yoann Ari and Gabor Maté and, and becoming familiar with your work as well, that's what fascinates me because even though, you know, I have no real exposure to addiction or I don't really know anyone who who has been addicted to, to drugs, um, when I look at some of these root causes, the social causes, this is stuff that I think everyone is grappling with and we've seen in our in our lives to some degree or another, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think we all know about this. Yeah. And that's the kind of mail I get. Like, I, I get a lot of mail. Mm-hmm. And people are saying, you know, I was, I was thinking something like this and then you put it into words and now I see – now I see. Yeah. And and that's right. I think people are just looking for a way of formulating this. And and I think that, you know, there are a number of people like, like Johan and, and, and Gabor and, and to some extent myself in the addiction field are, are just, just formulating what people already know. So if we can look at this as, uh, I think for a lot of people, a certain awakening, uh, and also because we have so much more access to media, right? I mean, there would be no... Joe Rogan experience podcast in the in the past. There was no TED talk where you could learn about a subject very quickly. Um, 
so since we're also inundated with media and can learn quite a bit about, let's say, let's say a little bit about a lot. Um, is this also why there is this awakening to an increased focus on mental health? Because a lot of people are recognizing that, okay, you know, I'm not addicted to heroin, but I, when we're talking about social connection and disconnection, yeah. there's a lot that, that I relate to. And maybe some of the bad habits that I've formed that are not life-threatening, but are still agitating me uh, are related. And it's, it's sort of in the, it's coming from the same place. Yeah, well, I mean, you're asking, is it, are the media enabling us to have that awakening, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the wonderful media are enabling us to have that awakening. At the same time, the wonderful media are providing a whole new form of addiction. Sure. <laughs> so there's the paradox, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, media are, you know, I'm, I'm not anti-media. They're, they're, they're wonderful, and for just the reason you say, mm -hmm. but they are also part of the problem. Yeah. And how do we resolve that paradox? Well... Well, that's my next question. How do we resolve this idea of social isolation and... Uh, meaninglessness if in someone's life like what what do we do on a systemic level to to start fixing this well the first thing we do of course is what you're doing right now is you we make people aware we mm -hmm. I mean, the first thing is always to to identify the problem and sure. say, say what the problem is well we're doing that but but where do we go beyond that it's it's very difficult to say mm -hmm. because the the world is you know inevitably becoming globalized and and it's inevitably becoming centered um, on a huge population yeah and the economic machine is not going to go away and and can we cope with that the problem is that if we look around at 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 what are the solutions to finding a you know finding a sense of well-being and a sense of identity in a in a huge globalized world like this, most of the solutions sound like doomsday solutions. <laughs> what, what do you mean? Like, what's the what's an example? Well, I've just been reading um, Shoshana Zuboff's book called "The Age of Surveillance Capitalism." Okay, in which she talks about how people are retreating into the not only into the internet but into the internet of things and into mm. the smart cities, where where really everything is, you know, we become integrated through the machine. And and that's fine to be integrated through the machine, except, she says, it's really not fully human, you know. Hmm. I mean, it's not fully human to, to have the, um, the algorithms which control us be entirely not only out of our control, but unknown to us. We don't know what the algorithms are which right. which control us. So, so the problem, I mean, you know, the problem is that we is that we have not really formulated a way out of this problem of fragmentation yet. I, I, I don't think anyone has formulated, except of course, people retreat to localities. Like I live on Pender Island. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not a coincidence. Uh, it's <laughs> it's nice to live on Pender Island. Sure, yeah. we have a nice community, and we, you know, to some extent, we're buffered from from all of the all of the stuff that that drives people crazy in the big city where I've lived most of my life, of course. Mm -hmm. But yeah, people people do retreat into to local communities and that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. But you can't retreat completely. I mean, just think about Pender Island. It, um, it's it's right in the middle of the one of the world's huge shipping lanes between Vancouver and the and the uh, and Asia. Right, yeah. You know, we are <laughs> we are, we only have the illusion that we've we've really retreated, but we have to some extent. And all I'm saying here is that I don't know the answer to this question. Sure. I, yeah. I don't know how we how we said it right. And and I do agree with the the most extreme social critics like this Shoshana Zuboff who I just mentioned who are saying, you know, we got to get this right. This mm -hmm. is just as essential as getting the climate change problem right. Sure, yeah. And and it's just as essential as getting the problem of nuclear war right. Mm -hmm. uh, because because it is perfectly possible that we could do as much damage to ourselves psychologically as we do to the earth ecologically. And and we've seen instances of that. If we go back to the totalitarian era in, in Europe and look at what happened to the Germans, what happened to the Russians under those totalitarian systems, mm -hmm. we can we can destroy 
humanity. I mean, that is humaniz- human humanism, really. We can we can right. destroy ourselves as human beings if we're not careful, and and we have to pay attention to it. But I I do not know how. <laughs> How to do it? You were supposed to have all the answers today. <laughs> well, you only—I mean, we need more than an hour for that. <laughs> I'm giving you a hard time. Um, I'm curious about this idea. I mean, we've talked about technology a little bit, and um, you know, we we sort of slag on technology quite a bit as well. But do you think we can also create a sense of social belonging through online communities as well? Like. Yeah. I, because I, I I really want to get away from this idea that all technology is bad and it's ruining us because it it has the potential to create just as good social bonds in a lot of ways. Absolutely. Yeah. A, I mean, the technology is neutral. We can use it sure. in all sorts of ways. Um, I mean, my favorite kind of example is I like I use technology every day. I of course, because I'm a writer, right? So mm-hmm. I, so I use Microsoft. And Microsoft Word, mm-hmm. and I use um, Wikipedia. Yeah, and Microsoft Word is this huge corporation, which is part, I think, in many ways of the, you know, the of what's what's scary about the internetization of the world. But Wikipedia, which is also a, a totally dependent on technology, is 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 a wonderful thing. It's just, you know, it's 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 being used in very positive ways. So. I think, you know, that we we mustn't fear technology. Mm-hmm. We we must make it our, we must bring it under control of of human interest. Yeah, and that's the same with economy. You know, I don't think we should fear capitalism. Sure. Yeah. But I think we should bring capitalism under control mm-hmm. of of the best interest of of human beings. Sure. And that's where we've that's where we've failed. We've let these things get out of control. Mm-hmm. And I think that you know the on that level, on a political level, I think what we have to do is just the hard political slogging work of knowing what our problem is and instituting the kinds of regulations and controls which which will enable us to to get what we need as human beings. Mm-hmm. And the, that's nothing. That's a huge, huge undertaking. It's the work of generations. And and that's why, for example, I want to set that against the demon drug hypothesis. Yeah. The demon drug hypothesis is, look, you want to solve your addiction problem, you just go out and get that drug off the street. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, that's right. You just get that off the street and then you're done, right? Yeah, it's so simple, <laughs> but it isn't. It isn't that simple. The, the larger problem is the problem of social reorganization, which is a political and social problem that we all need to be involved in, and including the media and including... You know, the best of our technology will help us do that. Mm-hmm. One one thing I want to ask you about before we sort of wrap up the 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 conversation about addiction here, um, we haven't really touched on this idea of trauma. We've talked about um, social connection and disconnection, yeah. um, but where does trauma fit into this in terms of um, being addicted to to things like opioids? Well, it. To me, it's all the same. I, I mean, I talk about it. I use the language of disconnection and sure. dislocation. But, of course, that that comes in traumatic forms as well. Right. So that, you know, we look at children and we say, well, this, this child really never had a chance because he never really was part of the community. But that, that also means this child was traumatized by being bullied uh, terribly or, or by being beaten up by an alcoholic parent mm-hmm. and... All of that, I, I I put it all in the same basket. Okay. And I know I know some people, you know, Gabor in particular, puts the emphasis more on trauma, mm-hmm. and I put the emphasis more on on the dislocation. But really, it's the same as far as I can tell. What what's lacking is is well being. Right. And and that we don't have a formula for it, and we can describe the opposite of well being in the, in the language of trauma, or we can. Describe it in the psychological language of dislocation and lack of attachment, or mm-hmm. or whatever. But all our, all our psychological language is vague. It, sure, yeah. <laughs> that's that's interesting to put it that way because I know that Johan Hari, he talks about both, and he yeah. talks about trauma, and he talks about the feeling of meaninglessness, which is often attached to not having 
properly built social bonds, right? right. So he does right. sort of divide them. But I guess it makes sense that there is a lot of overlap between the two. And it's just sort of how you draw the markers around this. Is that's, that... how, that's how it seems to me. It's just yeah. a matter of emphasis mm-hmm. of, of what language you would like to use to describe it. Mm-hmm. This is a big question. I, I, again, I don't know if we're going to answer it today, but um, you know, in the context of the current opioids crisis, which I, I think is is interesting because it really is a poisoning crisis. It's not just about yeah. addiction, right? So, um, but in terms of how we look at at least addiction in the city of Vancouver and the country of Canada, do you think that we're at least pointed in the right direction? Yes. I think we have a lot to be proud of in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. We started the, the interview here talking about the way it was 40 years ago and we did the Rack Park experiment and it was mm-hmm. all that police brutality gone, going on then. Yeah. It's not now. Mm-hmm. You know, we're handling things much better now. We, we have had a, this enormous harm reduction movement, which is, has made things way, way, way better. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have all kinds of new forms of treatment which make things way better. And we do not have the, the terrible stigmatization, the terrible kind of uh, dehumanization of, of addicts that, that we had before. Sure. So yeah, don't, we, we, have a, we have a lot to be proud of. But here's, and it, that's the good news. Okay. Here's the bad news, that even though we handle it so much better and we're doing so much less harm and we've closed down Ocala and the BC Pen, which used to be just full of, full of drug users, mm-hmm. um, we still got the same addiction problem. Sure. Yeah. It's not that, that means simply that we're handling it better. We're not making the big mistakes we made in the past. We are not solving the, base, the basic problem yet. Mm-hmm. And how will we solve that basic problem? Well, you asked me earlier and I said, I don't know. <laughs> I, I I don't know except by being aware of it. Yeah. I mean, being aware of it, you know, is half of the solution at least because then like we as parents, we as grandparents look at our children and we say, well, you know, okay, we're not just preparing this child to be a, a banker or to, you know, to go to a wonderful university like Simon Fraser University. Sure, yeah. <laughs> we're preparing this child to, you know, to have a, a place where they belong and and where they are accepted and loved and that's really the most important if we if we that realization that that is is absolutely essential to survival mm-hmm. um is critical yeah we start there and and we are doing that we are making that shift so i i, I mean i think there's a lot of room for optimism in that we've given up a lot of our old stupidity uh, and we're and we're we're thinking better, but we haven't got there yet. Sure, and and, and I would, you know, I, I think that's beautiful how you you wrapped it all up from how we started this interview to to where we are now, and I would I would add that this it validates uh, the fact that Vancouver is studied by a lot of different uh, by a lot of different places. You have researchers coming in like Yoan Ari to talk to people like you to talk to Gaver Mate. Yeah. Um, so that is something obviously to be proud of, but recognizing that there's so much more work to be done, clearly, uh, as we see in our city. Yeah, and I think we just have to face that. Yeah. This this was a, this was very interesting. I learned a lot, um, but I want to learn more. So if someone wants to read more about you and your work, and uh, I believe you have three books published, is that correct? I have three books. If someone is interested, mm-hmm. the best thing is to go to my website, mm-hmm. which is Bruce K. Alexander, all one word, okay. dot com. And there's lots of, my books are mentioned there, but, but there's also lots of recent speeches and, and interviews and, and things which are posted there that people could learn more about about my particular work. But if if someone wants to actually go to the library. The Vancouver Library has five <laughs> copies of my my book on this very topic that we've been discussing today. That book is called The Globalization of Addiction. Okay, great. And there are five copies waiting for you right in the Vancouver Library. <laughs> <laughs> you should be, is it still in print? Like, can you buy it? Oh, sure. sure. Yeah, you should be plugging that. Why are you plugging the library? You don't get royalties for that. Uh, well, I'm, okay. Okay. <laughs> 
Amazon.ca. There you go. <laughs> Search it. Or Canterbury Books on Commercial Drive is the best place to to buy this book or order it because they 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 ordered it in cheap. There you go. And it's called The Globalization of Addiction. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, again, this was a real honor, a real pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be here. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks very much. And and you ask really interesting and difficult questions. <laughs> I'm just here to learn. And I, and I hope the <laughs> listeners got a little bit out of it as well. Ladies and gentlemen, his work continues to change the way how we look at addiction. A legend in his own right. He is Dr. Bruce Alexander. And I'm Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace. <laughs>